Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and we are glad to have you with us for our second season. This season is an exploration of the intersection of race and voting rights. And when looking at the different facets of this topic, and especially barriers that might prevent a person from exercising their right to vote, we realized that it was a pretty big topic to try and cover in one conversation. You'll remember that in episode two, we looked at some of the systemic issues and barriers that might impact a person's ability to vote. Today, we'll take a look at some of the more overt aspects of voter suppression, what those efforts are, some of the misinformation around them, and what each of us can do to help ensure everyone with the right to vote is able to do so. We're delighted to be joined today by two guests who work directly with voting and the study of some of the barriers to voting. Karen Brinson-Bell is the Executive Director for the North Carolina State Board of Elections, a position in which she has served since 2019. Earlier this year, she was appointed to post on three national boards working to improve elections and election security in the United States. The National Association of State Election Directors, the Election Infrastructure Subsector Government Coordinating Council, part of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of the Department of Homeland Security, and the Bipartisan Policy Center Task Force on Elections. Karen, did I get that all right? You got that better than I would. <laughs> <laughs> Super. And we're also pleased to welcome today, Rebecca Theobald. Uh, Rebecca is an assistant professor of research at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs and the head of the GeoCivics Project, a state-based resource to develop skills and knowledge for discussing the electoral apportionment and redistricting process. In addition to her expertise on apportionment and redistricting, Professor Theobald's academic areas of interest include governance, public services, and public polity, political geography, and nationality, and nationalism. Welcome, ladies, to, our, to this podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having uh, us. If I may begin with you, Karen, um, I'd like to know what are the, your major responsibilities to ensuring that every eligible voter has an opportunity to cast their ballot? So as the chief election official for North Carolina, I, am, uh, I, I provide oversight to all 100 county boards of elections. So the state board of elections um, is the, we provide guidance, we provide the structure, we provide the technology also um, for all election operations in our state and, um, and for campaign finance as well. Um, the, the county boards are the front line, you know, the actual voting, the actual counting of ballots that happens there. And, and I actually was a county elections director. So I, I can, you know, I've, I've walked a mile in their shoes, as they would say. So um, I know firsthand what they go through. And, you know, the overall mission of what we do uh, is to ensure that every eligible North Carolinian is able to cast their, their right, you know, exercise their right to vote and cast their ballot. And, um, you know, at this point, we have over 7 million registered voters in North Carolina. Um, and we, we have that charge, uh, whether it's a small municipal election or a presidential 
uh, election, even in a pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, the former uh, state emergency management director, and he said, Director Bell, when do you you know, stop an election? When would you not you know, hold an election? I said, sir, we don't stop an election. We figure out how to proceed. And uh, you know, that is one thing. You know, we are going to ensure that every, again, every eligible voter is able to exercise their right to vote. So if I were to ask you today, what does the election landscape look like when it comes to voter suppression? You know, as the as election administrators, you know, our job is to you know, whatever the law provides for to ensure that that's carried out. Um, you know, I can say that we've not seen a lot of changes in North Carolina's election law over the past few years, but we have seen that across the nation. And, and in some cases, it would be deemed to, uh, you know, be uh, suppressive to voters. And in some um, states, you've, you've actually seen things open up um, because of, in large part, because of things that we learned through the pandemic. Um, so I think in North Carolina, while there's still room for improvement, you know, what we focus on is, is how can we best carry out and deliver um, safe, secure, fair elections um, in our state. And we work, uh, you know, we, we have a very concerted effort to be as uniform as possible. And I think that's one of the keys to our role is, you know, we don't advocate, we aren't activists, but what we do is, is to ensure that, you know, the voter who has a, a voting experience in Manio has that same voter experience as much as we can possibly carry it out in, in Murphy. Um, and so we've really tried to give uniform guidance to the counties um, so that, you know, as, as someone casts their ballot, whether it be by mail or during the early voting period or on election day, that we have consistent processes um, that, you know, I think that helps to ensure that someone can exercise their right, right to vote and um, guard against voter suppression. Mm. Okay. So now I would like to ask you, Rebecca, because one of the things that we talk about or we hear about a lot when we talk about voter suppression, of course, is the, the whole idea and concept of gerrymandering and, and how we draw maps in this country um, to, to either include more or to exclude more, right? And uh, I, I had a great time playing on your um, geocivics uh, maps today, trying to figure out how could I draw a map. And I have no idea where to even begin, but it was, it was fun to look at. But from your perspective as a professor and you're teaching people this, what is it that, what is the, what is the difficulty in coming up with um, maps that, pe that most people would deem equitable in their communities. So first, I would like to thank Karen for her public service, because I know it is a challenging time for uh, elected officials. I, I have a graduate Absolutely. student, uh, former graduate student who is serving uh, in the uh, county electoral office, and I've heard those challenging stories. So thank you for that work. And uh, I, I hope that we are able to continue to prepare people to be able to participate and serve in those uh, in those areas, and and that's really where I would like to make sure that students uh, across the country are ready to be com complete citizens, uh, both participating and then making judgments about what is happening in their communities. Mm -hmm. uh, so your question is, you know 
how could somebody be prepared to draw a fair map? And also to, to kind of assess, is this map fair? And also what does fair mean? Yes. So all of those questions really come together uh, and particularly as a geographer, uh, I like to encourage people to go on and do exactly as you were doing, kind of understand those um, that mapping process. And that's what the Geocivics Project has been striving to do, um, you, you know, over the, the past several years. And the, a key component of uh, the process really is the, um, the issues in each state. So each state has a particular set of guidelines that they have determined will inform how you draw a map. And if nothing else, um, students and uh, citizens should understand what those uh, criteria are. And some of those are what we call kind of traditional redistricting criteria uh, in that uh, a district should be um, contiguous, meaning it can't be uh, different parts of a state. Uh, if you're going across water, that's uh, an exception. Uh, for instance, if you have islands, uh, those may, may not be seen as contiguous, but there, there are rules for that. Um, there are also uh, rules that, that um, they have to include people, uh, generally uh, uh, the same population. So equal population is the other main criteria, um, particularly at the federal level. And that varies at different states, right? Whether it's within 10% or 5% uh, of a particular uh, number uh, for a state legislature. Then we have to comply with the Voting Rights Act. And so that is, I would say, a completely different podcast uh, would be to discuss uh, how, where the Voting Rights Act uh, is uh, situated at this time in the United States, but that's another criteria. Then uh, most states say that you have to have a compact district. And there are very difficult uh, mathematical analyses that can be done to determine whether a district is compact. But as a geographer, I would also caution uh, people in just looking at a map and saying, oh, that, that district looks weird and it's gerrymandered. Well, it might be for a particular reason. It might be to do with a mountain range or a river uh, or any uh, particular kind of uh, geographic feature that might actually impact how that, uh, that district might look. So the very most important um, aspect of map drawing is that the people who are drawing those maps be very familiar with the locations in the state. Mm. So understanding one's whatever area you're drawing, whether it's a city or a county, a parish, a state, you really need to make sure that you understand who the people are in that district, what the characteristics of the districts are, both uh, human and physical, and then start to figure out how to group those people together. Because that's really what you're doing, is saying, with whom am I voting? And so encouraging people to look at that information is, I think, maybe the, the step that we need to start doing. And I've been really encouraged by folks in Wisconsin with the Fair Maps Coalition. They've said, we're not done. 
uh, just looking at maps, we really need to understand what has happened with the maps in our state and to help people understand that your vote matters um, no matter which district you are in which you are situated. Mm. I think that's really interesting to be talking about the maps and and obviously we think about it during a redistricting period and and where the congressional lines fall and and you know even down to the municipal level um what I what I think is probably not well known is that we even give some of those kind of considerations when we um, consider merging or um, drawing new precinct lines. So if we, we've combined precincts in North Carolina in some places and in others, we've had to split and create new precincts. And we look at those some of those same factors whenever we consider whether um, a polling place should be moved. And, um, you know, and, and even how we set up our one-stop sites. We look at the geography, we look at the population, we look at the, the makeup of those voters um, to make sure that we're not uh, disproportionately favoring or, or disfavoring um, certain groups. And, and it does get really interesting because um, there's times when, you know, North Carolina has mountain ranges and, and uh, you, know, um, you know, the intercoastal waterway and sounds and, and things like that. And, um, and as in a time when we struggle to find adequate, um, accessible voting places, and I don't mean just uh, you know, there is certainly from a disability standpoint, but accessible from for transit reasons and so forth. Um, it, that is that is a real challenge uh, to to even have adequate polling places um, to serve a growing voting population and not um, disfavor anyone. Right. I would imagine too in a state. I've, I'm a relative newcomer to North Carolina. I've been here now about two and a half years. Um, but just seeing the differences between how do you accommodate rural communities as opposed to urban communities, right? So can you speak a little to, um, from a state perspective, and as you're doing all of these um, accessibility studies, how do you account for or what goes into the process as you look at urban areas like Charlotte, and then you look at, you know, you look at Wilson or Tarboro, right. someplace like that. Um, well, you know, I actually, I grew up in rural Eastern North Carolina. And then when I was a county election director, it was in the Western part of the state. And, you know, it, there's a lot of factors that we consider, you know, from the rural standpoint right now, what they're struggling with is, you know, there's provisions within our law that um, for those who are working the polling place on election day, they cannot be related to a candidate, they cannot be related to each other, they can't be a party official. So when you get to some of these areas where you have, you know, four or 500 registered voters in a, in a precinct or a polling uh, in a precinct, it's pretty hard to meet that criteria and then have adequate folks to work those polling locations. So while I was in Transylvania County um, as their county director, we actually combined three polling places because we were having or precincts rather, because we were having difficulty finding adequate workers and adequate facilities. But you know what's interesting is a lot of our precinct lines are, are historically based and they do reference a cherry tree or a river or something. And you know, they are they are central to that community. Um, there's a, you know, there's several examples, but I have been to a voting house in Haywood County, North Carolina that was built by members of the community, center block building with a potbelly stove, and they have to bring in a porta potty whenever they vote there. But 
keeping that as a voting site has been so um, you know, there's a there's a sense of community there that they don't want to lose. And so we face that challenge um, of making sure that when we combined in Transylvania County, those three precincts that we didn't make it difficult on the members of those communities to travel to a voting site um, because they did have to go over, um, you know, some mountains. I mean, it's the mountains. Um, so they we had to factor that in and so forth. But in the urban areas, they have a different struggle. Um, you know, you you have to consider at what point is a precinct population too large um, to be, you know, could you even hold a, a you know, voting in a, in a site if everyone chose to vote on election day. But unique to North Carolina, not uh, maybe it's not unique, but what we've seen in North Carolina is a growing trend where people vote early during our 17-day one-stop early voting period. So I know I've heard the, the director in Mecklenburg County discuss how one of their precincts is really, you know, if you just look at the sheer numbers, you would probably say they should split it two or three times um, into smaller precincts, but they have such a strong turnout and this is in downtown Charlotte, where they, you know, lots of high rise living and and um, and condensed housing. And so they're finding that those folks vote early to where election day is a very small turnout. So in that sense, they don't have to worry about voters having to stand in long lines or, um, you know, have difficulty casting their ballot because they have had that 17 day period and they've utilized it. So we haven't um, pushed the issue for them to split um, some of their larger precincts, but um, it's certainly, you know, it, it's part of the challenge and it's part of the history of these communities and making sure that um, they don't feel misrepresented. I will say a lot of these decisions are made at the county level, but they do require state sign off. So, um, you know, I have to, they have to justify, they have to provide maps and, and so forth when they do some of these uh, significant changes or they move a polling place outside of the precinct boundaries. Um, and, and then we're having to see that, we're seeing that happen in some cases, especially in the rural communities because of lack of facilities. But if a county board is not unanimous in their decision about one-stop sites, early voting sites, then that actually comes up to the state board and the state board has to consider, does it disproportionately um, affect you know, people based on race, ethnicity, geography? Um, so you know, there is a charge within our law to make sure that we are, um, are at least providing um, ample opportunity to all voters and, and try to ensure that we're not suppressing the vote in any way. And, um, and what I've seen from at least the, the current state board is that uh, that means that they will approve more hours, more days, more locations, um, anytime that, that they can, because they do want to make sure that it's a good voting experience and um, that we are able to serve um, voters where they live and where they work. And that's really key with the early voting period. Nice. I think, so I'd like to just continue with that line of conversation and ask you, what do you consider those some of the most overt ways in which people can, at the county level, um, suppress people's ability to vote? You know, it, 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 what comes up quite often, the public comment and so forth that we receive um, when those county boards are trying to decide um, early voting locations or whether they're going to merge or split precincts is that very thing, you know, it's, it's that, you know, there's traditionally been voting in this community center, for example, and now you're no longer doing that. 
we hear, you know, that often draws concern of whether there's an attempt to suppress the vote. Um, because we have so many universities in North Carolina, uh, there's a strong desire in a lot of these communities to have voting on college campuses. And so, you know, when, when a county board chooses to not do that, um, that generates a lot of questions around, are they, you know, disadvantaging a, a population um, by doing that. Um, when you move a voting uh, location off of a transit route um, in some of the more urban areas, you know, where um, there's not a clear bus route available um, to, to voting locations, then those are the things that, that have to be considered, um, you know, and, and that's where it becomes so key that we require that unanimous support at the county level, and if not, that it comes up to the state board for their consideration. Um, Rebecca, with the research that you do and the work that you do with your students, I'm curious, um, in your experience, what role do you believe race has played in voter suppression? And is that still a factor? And if so, to what extent? At this point, uh, the individuals who have the power to draw the lines uh, to make the districts are not overtly at all talking about race. They mm -hmm. will say, well, we have drawn this district and we didn't look at the population at all to, to determine whether or not uh, we should be drawing the lines this way. We are, we are simply following the rules. However, uh, the result uh, really uh, exemplifies the fact that many uh, groups who have been traditionally underrepresented are continuing to be either underrepresented or uh, to have their, uh, their ability to have their voice heard uh, to really be suppressed. Um, and this is being done in, you know, across the country. Uh, and so a number of cities where, which are traditionally higher minority, higher democratic voting, um, higher uh, low income areas sometimes uh, have been split. Uh, and if we are looking at traditional uh, redistricting criteria, one of those criteria could be not to split uh, existing, um, political entities so that you would try to avoid splitting a city or splitting a county, a school district, uh, a water district, anything that is already in place that has a particular uh, political definition. Uh, and uh, just as a note in North Carolina, one of the most famous uh, uh, gerrymandering cases split a college campus. So again, those kinds of uh, decisions that are made by the people who are drawing the lines um, can be challenging. So in this most recent uh, redistricting process, several cities have been divided. And again, if you would like to start with the, the basic criteria, really not splitting these cities uh, would be important. So those include Kansas City, Kansas, uh, Nashville, Salt Lake City, Tampa, Little Rock, and Oklahoma City, just to name a few. And so it's very clear that there is an intent to change how those individuals in those cities are represented. And, and that's very concerning. Uh, because it is, and I want to go back uh, to your original question, which is how can you do this? Well, in fact, 
people in communities across the country in each state have taken the time to learn to manage these geographic information systems um, tools and to draw uh, proposed uh, maps for their states that are that comply with all of the state guidelines and that emphasize different aspects of uh, what might be considered a fair map. Um, so those, those individuals out there, sometimes students, but also just regular members of the community have said, look, here are maps that might uh, provide the least amount of splitting of, of political entities, right? And so look at this map, make a decision as to whether that map might be fair. Um, or perhaps you would like to emphasize minority representation. Here's a map that complies with all of the requirements, but gives priority to minority representation. There are maps for every state that provide these different, um, that, that bring these different criteria forward, but we're not having the discussion between these different maps. We are in places such as Ohio, just looking at uh, the maps that will provide the largest party advantage for the party in charge. And that is what's challenging. And so while it is not overtly saying we are going to uh, suppress voters, the result of prioritizing party advantage over every other criteria leads to, in many cases, the result of voter suppression. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are there certain states that have a separate um, governing board almost of maps so that it is not so that it is less political in nature? Or is it just by its just purpose? Just <laughs> it's always going to be a political exercise to create these maps. Not every country works the way we do. Uh, there are for the most countries, most democracies have a, a, a nonpartisan uh, entity that decides how to draw the maps based on the criteria in that uh, country. It is across most states, uh, about 35 states where the state legislature, uh, which is a political body, is in charge of drawing those maps. And there are really only just a handful of states that have had successful nonpartisan um, maps drawn. So uh, in Colorado, we had uh, for the first time uh, independent commissions drawing these maps. They consisted of equal numbers of independents, Republicans, and Democrats. So it certainly was partisan. Uh, there were people of the particular perspectives but they came to agreement and were able to draw what most people consider to be a pretty, pretty good maps. And they were challenged uh, briefly in court, but were not, um, it, those challenges are over. Uh, so were they perfect maps? No, in my view, but they are, I, I think that they are fair maps for the people in the state. And you asked earlier about the difference, uh, the challenges of rural versus urban in, in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. North Carolina's um, population actually is spread relatively evenly across the state, whereas in Colorado, 
um, we have the majority, 85% of our population is centered on the front range with, for people who have not been to Colorado, that's Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, Fort Collins, those, um, uh, those cities uh, before you get to the mountains. Our Eastern Plains, which look a lot more like Kansas, um, uh, also a very low population as well as the Western Slope. So one of the other challenges for um, individuals when they are looking at a map and trying to understand the uh, representation process is to make sure that they understand, first of all, the census data so that you understand where people are living. And so you might look at the map and say, oh my goodness, why is District 3 in Colorado so big? This just seems unfair. Well, it's because the priority is not geography, not to represent the space, but to represent the people. people. And so again, helping people understand what may or may not be fair means that initially you really have to make sure that you understand the whole apportionment and redistricting process, which of course is the obligation of, I would say K through 12 education uh, and civics uh, educators across the country. Um, Karen, um, I guess then that would suggest that um, some things are labeled as voter suppression um, that really may not be, but, re but, re but rather may be um, the public's um, um, lack of understanding about how these things are developed and how uh, districts are created, how voting places are created and all of that. What would you say are some of the biggest myths around what we call voter suppression? Um, well, I think a good example of that is some of the questions that have come up around absentee by mail voting. Um, as we headed into 2020, we North Carolina is, is not an all-mail balloting state um, like Colorado and a few others out west primarily. Um, and, you know, but, so in in 2016, for example, we um, we had fewer than 200,000 ballots cast by mail, uh, so very very small. Um, and then, as we headed into uh, the general election, presidential election for 2020, in the pandemic, um, many states actually went to an all mail balloting model. Uh, but we knew that that was not the tendency for North Carolinians. Um, and we had already been looking at how to have uh, a ballot that was cast by mail um, you know, be counted. Uh, there in North Carolina, we have criteria that uh, there are two witnesses that must um, indicate that the voter was who cast that ballot um, and the voter must sign and, and so forth. But um, even going into 2020, not knowing about the pandemic, we knew we were not having the highest success rate um, of those ballots being cast successfully. And it meant, you know, they simply were just not completing the return materials properly. Um, and so, and, and researchers had found, we don't see it this way because when it's in front of the, the county boards for approval for an absentee ballot, they don't see demographics. I mean, they see the voter to know that, um, you know, that they are a properly registered voter and, and that sort of thing. Um, but they're looking that they've they've checked all the boxes that are required for that ballot to be considered. And um, but, you know, as researchers, you know, can take voter history data and so forth and, and do some analysis, they were finding that um, people of color were were less successful in casting that. 
ballot. So we were already looking at, um, we work at, at how do we improve that process? Because, you know, as I've mentioned, that's what we do. We we don't write the laws. Um, of their, you know, there, there are a lot of court cases that question whether there's measures in the laws to suppress voters or affect voter turnout or, 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 or favor a party over another, whatever it might be. Um, but when, when it comes down to us, it's like, how do we best implement and carry out those laws that we are required? And when we see that there is anything that's infringing upon a voter's ability to exercise their right to vote, we want to fix that. Um, so we we worked with this, it's a group called the Center for Civic Design, and they look at having things be as user friendly as possible. They do uh, study groups and test cases and so forth. So they have practical experience that they could guide us in how to make you know forms and, and an absentee return envelope is a, a form um, they've looked at our voter registration forms and so forth too i should say but this particular they said you know it was it was a lot of fine print it was a lot of um, small print it wasn't user friendly and, and and so it put it into a step-by-step -step process the flap has a checklist so you you know we remember did you do all these things before you seal that envelope and you know our success rate went up and what makes that so remarkable is it wasn't a huge jump up, but we had a huge jump up in the number of people casting their ballots by mail. In 2020 general election, we had over a million ballots cast by mail. It was our second most popular voting method. Um, election day was the least used voting method in North Carolina in that general election because of the pandemic. And so, you know, it, I, I consider those to be success stories. Um, and, and I feel like that's us being good election administrators and trying to serve the voters who are our customer um, to make it a good voting experience. But I think, you know, that's an area where there's there's myths sometimes. And, and there's also, you know, times when, you know, we've already touched on every state does differently in many ways. And so things that happen in other states often come into um, our area um, and we have to dispel um, things like that. You know, for example, um, you know, as long as, as you're not paying someone to to vote in any way, and I don't mean just like monetary, you know, it could be things of value, um, you is and you're not in the buffer zone, and that's the, the safe space between the building where you vote and the, the area where people can campaign and electioneer, um, then you can hand out a bottle of water. You just can't say you can have this bottle of water if you'll vote for me. Um, or if, or even if you vote, um, you know, it, it can't be a requirement that you vote to get this bottle of water. Now you're probably going to vote if that's why you're in line at a polling place, but you know, it, but, but when other states have implemented um, rules and regulations that seem to differ from that, you know, it, it's dispelling that, that we um, don't have those, you know, those same rules or laws in place in North Carolina and making sure that people know what, what is in place in North Carolina. Do you do you, two things I'd like to know going forward, do you foresee a time when um, all voting will probably be either by mail or early voting and we really won't have like just this one major election day? Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there does seem to be a movement where more states are adopting all mail balloting um, because, you know, there's the convenience of that. You do it on your own time in your own home and, and that sort of thing. 
but that really doesn't seem to be the tendency for North Carolinians. Um, now I say that, you know, and know that when we first started the early voting, it wasn't readily used by North Carolinians either. So, you know, I guess, you know, if, if you educate and put things in good procedures in place, then they'll adapt to it. But, um, but I do think that there's the potential, you know, even in places that have all mail, they still have the ability for someone to go and put that ballot, you know, into a tabular in person if that's what they want to do. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I don't want to say that we would ever do away with election day, um, right. because I think that would be in place. But what I do think there we should be considering is um, how do we maybe continue our early voting um, design on election day. There is such value in, in polling place, in, excuse me, in our precincts and the history around that and so forth. But we're a very, uh, you know, of course more people are working from home. So I don't know if I could say we're a very mobile society at this point, but, um, but yet we do tend to do, um, take care of business when we are, you know, go and, and to and from work. So, you know, having voting centers available where people work more than always focused on where they live, you know, is, is the design that really, when you think about the one-stop early voting, that it kind of mimics. We still have, you know, those sites out in residential areas, but so I'm, I'm kind of being long-winded here, but I think what it speaks to is that, you know, that we do have to look at voting patterns and how we best serve those voters. And, you know, the other thing that people don't realize is we've become a society that, you know, we, we, we want, we think one change should just proliferate everything. So if you move and you update your driver's license, that should just take care of everything right down to your cable service. But it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, people have to update their voter registration and sometimes they don't. And so here it comes and it's election day or it's early voting and, and you know, the neighbor said, come on, I'm going to vote, go with me. And, and they show up and they're not on the, the book. And so that's where we really benefit from that early voting period is that, you know, we call it one stop because you can update your registration, you can vote any ballot at that, that site. Um, and it, it cuts down on the number of provisional ballots that we have cast, or uh, there's the ability for someone to same day register. So if they're not even a registered voter or, or somehow um, were removed from the books, um, they can get you know, back to being a current registered voter right then and there. And so I would say that there is there should be some discussion around that for North Carolina, because it just we, we see, you know, 65 percent of our ballots were cast in that early voting period at those sites um, in 2020. And, and so I think that's where, and, and we're still seeing that. So I, I think that's where we probably should put our focus. Hmm. And of course I asked that at a time when there's debate in the country about whether or not election day should be a national holiday and give people the day off, right? So that they could all go and exercise the right to vote. So perhaps there will always then be this mix yeah. of, and combination, which is, which is great, which is like, kind of you know emblematic of the country as a whole we like to give people choice and, and so I've i guess mm -hmm. yeah, i've encouraged um the legislature to adopt election day as a holiday because, Have you? yes it was in some of a proposal that we put forward to them uh i think that was in 2020 as well but you know one of the things that that helps with is we have a hard time getting 
people who are civically engaged to be poll workers anymore. Um, we have a hard time getting facilities um, with all the challenges around security at schools. Schools are a great voting site, but you have that 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 facet of um, you know the security of the students and the security of the voting place, and, and they don't always align. Um, and so, if the, the schools were closed, if it was a holiday, then we would have those facilities available to us. Um, you know, so those are just some of the challenges of of why, and, and perhaps I mean I, I I don't know. I'll leave it to the professor to do some research on this because yeah. I don't know it for sure. But you know, I, I'm sure that there potentially the the turnout might be better um, because everybody has it front of mind. Um, now, while the political ads don't make it front of mind, I'm not sure. But we, you know, if, if it was a holiday, maybe people we would see more participation, which is always a goal. Yeah, that's great because we do tend to have low turnouts even in national elections, right? Yeah. Which is just really. I mean, we had our largest turnout in modern history in North Carolina um, in the 2020 presidential, and it was 75 right at 75 percent just shy of that and i mean that's remarkable but yeah. i want those other 25 percent to vote too <laughs> <laughs> there's the goal there's the goal uh, i know we, we've got to wrap up we're just about out of time but i would like to turn back to you rebecca i have two questions one for you is um do you foresee a time or do you think that there could be consideration ever given to um elections moving from, I know there are states' rights at this moment, to more of a national, um, to, to creating national standards. I mean, I know we have the Voting Rights Act, but that's, even that has been gutted, but to having real national standards around voting so that more and more states would be relatively the same in terms of the adoption of laws and to create fairness or at least more of a, a view of fairness, right? <laughs> Well, it, it would take a change in the legislature at this point, the Congress, uh, because those uh, proposals have been put forward. The John Lewis uh, Act, uh, other uh, um, other bills have been put forward and they have been rejected. Um, so they those proposals are out there um, and those would include making um, a requirement that there be an independent redistricting commission in every state. And I would argue that those are the states now with the fairest, um, most representative, and also in the process of, of, and depending on how that independent redistricting commission was uh, constructed, uh, those are the states with the best maps at this point. And it then also provides a place where citizens are able to have um, comment about this. And that's something we haven't talked about in terms of uh, not voter suppression, but the suppression of one's voice in terms of getting to the point where you're going to vote and with whom you will vote. And when you look at the process for how the regular person can just say, hey, you know, the way you've drawn this district just really isn't fair. There are many states where those conversations are not enabled to happen. Whereas in Colorado, um, in Michigan, uh, in California, there is a complete record now of all of those conversations. Um, I believe it was in Alabama where they did have comments, but those comments now have disappeared from the public record. You can't find them. 
And so there are many ways to go about uh, suppressing uh, how people can participate in the political process. Um, and uh, kind of traditional voter suppression is just one of them. Uh, and people have found, you know, really interesting ways uh, to prevent people from exercising their voice. I, I would like to just make a comment about whether or not we will get rid of election day. I think probably not. Um, and I, I really do miss going to my elementary school and at one point organizing the uh, bake sale during election day uh, and seeing neighbors. And that does not happen anymore in Colorado. Um, we, I, I usually though do like to just at least drop off my um, ballot in a drop box somewhere. So I feel like I am voting rather than just sticking it in the mail. Um, but uh, to you know, think about uh, analyses, we have pretty high turnout in Colorado because it is all vote by mail. Um, and so that does make things a, a little bit easier. Um, but I, I really think that uh, choice as Karen uh, emphasized is, is, a good, is a good approach. Um, so, and another question you had. Yes, I was just gonna say if more elementary schools or more voting places have home baked goods, your, your voter turnout might be a little larger. Just, you know, just throwing that out there. <laughs> My final question to both of you, and I'll start with you, Rebecca, is what can the average person do to help stop efforts um, around voter suppression? What can we do as ordinary citizens? First, be very aware of all of the different aspects of citizen participation. And so if you are in a community um, and uh, whether you are, uh, are you a registered voter? Um, and maybe you are not eligible to be a registered voter, but you can still be aware of the policies that are being made at each level of the democratic process. So city council, county commission, state legislature, um, are, do you have to vote for a uh, state Supreme Court or a federal judge? All those differ across the country. Be aware of who is representing you at different levels of government. And so having that knowledge, I think is the very first uh, foundation for making sure that your participation in the political process counts. Great. And to you, Karen, same question. Uh, I think what I would add to it, a couple of things come to mind. During 2020, we had a number of organizations reach out to us that would not normally be part of voting, I would say. Um, they, you know, they they deemed their cause or their purpose to be something else, and and considered maybe that to be political. Voting, you know, is, is, does not have to be political. You know, that's just you know exercising your right to vote um, may be making choices between political candidates, but the the exercise is, is you know it's just having your voice. Um, and it was interesting to engage in those organizations and to try to make sure that we were reaching as many people as we could um, with with trusted source of, of information, accurate information at a time when we had a lot of moving parts and things changing quickly. Um, and so I think that's that's one thing is that is that we don't have the same civic organizations and things that we used to, but if you do, 
then, then try to make sure that you're getting accurate voting information to your membership or to um, your, your congregation. Um, I, I think this is wonderful that, that y'all are doing this and it's another avenue for me to help people become um, informed. And, and that's what we have to do. I would ask that people um, go to trusted sources of information. A lot of these myths can be dispelled if people would just go to trusted sources of information. So to that, I will give a plug to the State Board of Elections. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And we have we established the voter confidence campaign in 2019 um, as we were certifying some new voting equipment and we wanted people to understand what that process was about. And so we have facts that we put out on social media every single day. We have Mythbuster Monday, Secure Saturday, Fun Fact Friday, Trivia Tuesday. I'm forgetting Wednesday at this point in time, but um, but that gives you the information that you need to know to make sure that you can cast your ballot. And, um, and press releases, we have a, a very thorough website that we keep up to date. We've redesigned that to be user-friendly. Um, and, and there's just a wealth of information, um, but it's hard in a world of sound bites for us to break through. We don't, uh, we don't um, we're not the most sound bite. Uh, elections are complex. And so we have to put a lot of information out there, but there have been a lot of changes at the same time with North Carolina. So um, if we can do our part right here as this group to educate folks, but also um, that the voters make sure that they're going to trusted sources of information. I think that's their part as well. Hmm. That's great. I can't wait to see what Wednesday is. So I'm going to check in. <laughs> so <wait> to see <laughs> to see what happens there. But I, I do want to say, I do want to thank you all very much for your time today. That is all the time we have for this episode, but to Karen Brinson Bell and to Rebecca Theobald, I am very grateful for your being with us today. I also want to thank our wonderful producer, Christine McTaggart, and to you, the listening audience. See you next time.